All right. Well, if you've got a Bible, we're going to 1 Peter chapter 4 today. 1 Peter 4, and let's pray as we open it. Uh, Father, we come to you now hopeful. We're hopeful in what you're doing in our midst in these days of, of testing. We know that, that all of us are being tried. We're, we're struggling in many ways. And you're revealing to us some things. You're revealing to us either our faith or, or our lack thereof. Um, so today, because we believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, we pray that as we open your word, that you would speak to us in a way that builds our faith in Jesus. Help us to, to trust in him more. Help us to know him better. Help us to respond to what he calls us to by faith. And I pray that what we get from your word today will be something that strengthens us so that we can, can go through suffering faithfully and well and even with joy. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's keep reading in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so, so Peter's continuing the most common theme in this book, the theme of suffering as a Christian or walking through trials as Christians. And he's trying to prepare his readers and then by extension us for a life of following Christ that won't be characterized by ease or by constant success or by smooth sailing. And that's because it's a life of following Jesus who went to the cross. And so if Jesus went to the cross and we're saying that we follow him, then we should expect that there'll be hardships and trials that come our way. We're just walking through what he walked through if we're following after him. And so, so we'll work through this section phrase by phrase today, starting in verse 12. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So the first thing he tells us, and this is important, is that we're not supposed to be surprised when fiery trials come our way, and we're not supposed to respond like something totally out of the ordinary has, is happening or like something's gone wrong. And I think this is already an important reminder for us because we're often shocked and surprised when we go through trials as Christians. And I think one of the reasons for that is because of the widespread belief in the prosperity gospel. And, and the prosperity gospel claims that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. And so if you're not prospering, it's because of usually a problem with your faith or because of a problem with your own obedience. That if you were to believe more fully, then you would be healed of your disease. If, if you just had more faith, you'd have more money. You'd be more of a baller. You wouldn't be driving what you drive. If, if you were better, you would be receiving better. And sometimes it's you'd be receiving better for someone else, that maybe God would heal that loved one that you're praying for that doesn't seem to be getting better if you were more obedient or if you had more faith. 
And now there are extreme versions of the prosperity gospel that are all over the place. There's the, the televangelist who asks you to put your hand on the TV screen and then send him money so that he can buy the private jet that God wants him to buy so he can do his prospering in it. And, and so it's very easy for, for many people to kind of fall for that and to send in that money thinking that I'm sowing this seed so that I can harvest that in my life in some kind of like cash harvest. I think there are others who guarantee healing who say that God doesn't want you sick, so there must be a way for you to have just the right kind of faith so that you can be healed in this life, and faith is somehow the answer to unlock that healing. And so that's the extreme form of the prosperity gospel, and it certainly has a lot of adherence around the world. The documentary American Gospel sheds a lot of light on it. I saw that it's still for rent on Prime right now, and I definitely think it's worth watching. But honestly, it's not just an American teaching anymore. Uh, it's actually rampant now in the global south. It's spreading all over the place. But I would say, knowing the people of Grace Road, that most people here don't adhere to the extreme forms of the prosperity gospel. I mean, we know that God is a healer. We know that he does answer prayers. Uh, but we also know that sometimes the answer to those prayers is no or not now. And so it can be easy for us to think, all right, well, the prosperity gospel, that's not my issue. That's for people who go to other churches, but honestly, I think that we're all susceptible to a more subtle form of the prosperity gospel that says, if I'm doing things right, things should go right for me. So a few examples. You work hard, you live with integrity, you pay your bills, and you have the, expe the expectation that because you're working hard for God, he's working hard for you. And you're probably not expecting riches, but you certainly wouldn't expect any kind of calamity either. And then when calamity comes you wonder why your faith has failed you. Like, where's God? This isn't supposed to happen. Or you're doing all you can to raise your kids right, to raise them to know Christ, to live with integrity, with the expectation that they'll follow Jesus. And you've made sacrifices so that your kids would turn out the right way. And so you wouldn't expect any other kind of results. But then one of the kids wanders. And you wonder why you're not seeing this return on all of your sacrifices and all your work. Or maybe you're praying for God to provide you ways to serve him, and then he answers not with this amazing opportunity, but more with a trial and a hardship for you to walk through faithfully to sanctify you. And you can doubt and disbelieve that, that God is good or that he's answering or that he's listening because that's not quite the opportunity that you were expecting as God's child. Or you're headed toward marriage. And you're abstaining before marriage, hoping that that will build the foundation for a great marriage. And you have the expectation that because you're doing things right, it'll pay off in a great marriage. But then the marriage still ends up being hard. And now here's where this can be confusing. There is some truth to this. I mean, for one, God is gracious and he does miraculously answer prayers. We do pray for God to heal people. And also the Bible does teach the general principle of sowing and reaping. That if you sow something, you will reap that thing. And like the book of Proverbs teaches a bunch of truisms where it says things like Proverbs 10.4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Or Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way that he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And these Proverbs are true in, in the way that Proverbs are true. They're true-isms. They, they tell us the way that the world works. Now, everybody knows that there are exceptions to truisms because we, we all know that there are diligent people who work very, very hard, but then they have a medical crisis and they go bankrupt and they, they never make ends meet again. We know that there are children who depart from the ways that their parents teach. 
But a proverb isn't making a claim that 100 times out of 100, diligent people get rich. That's not what a proverb is. It's a general truism rather than a guarantee. And so if I were to say to you, man, if you change your oil on time and you, you stick to it and you are just religious about oil changes, you'll get 200,000 miles out of your car. I mean, that's a general truism, but we also know there are exceptions. There are people who drive Nissans. Like, it's not like this is going to be true for everybody. I mean, you could say 13 seconds is not enough time to drive the length of the field and score to win the game. <laughs> but it depends who you're playing. Like, it's, there, there are general things that are generally true, but are not 100% true 100% of the time. And so we speak Proverbs to tell people generally how the world works, and these are also very helpful truisms. I mean, we should have confidence that when we go out and we go to work and we work hard and focus and we pick up skills and maintain integrity and maintain a good name, that God has made the world in such a way that very often that does go well. And that is how we provide for our families. And I want my kids to grow up like, with, with the hope that they can work really hard and achieve good things for their family. I want them to know that's how the world works, but it's also true that people get sick, that some people lack opportunities, that there's real oppression in places. And so, so it's not a 100 times out of 100 this works, but it is a general truism that God made the world green, he made things grow on it, so you can sow into this world and receive good things out of it. 1 Corinthians 9.10 talks about farmers who sow in hope that you plant seeds, and the reason you plant those seeds is because you want to get a harvest that's way more than, than those seeds that you planted. Then on top of that, we want to teach our kids the word, and we're expecting and we're hopeful for a harvest. We want to see them follow Jesus for the rest of their lives, and there's a good chance that they will. Also, we do strive for purity, and, and it can make a lot of things better, work better in marriage because God does give commands for our good, but we, we strive for it to obey God, to glorify God, and sometimes it still doesn't go the way we would want it to. We work hard expecting to bring home a good paycheck, and that's all God-blessed and God-ordained activity. That law of sowing and reaping does apply to an awful lot in life because they're just natural consequences of good decisions, and there's positive gain for making better choices most of the time. But we're also in a broken world. And in a broken world, things don't always go the way that they should. So there's a famine and the crops don't grow this year. The child wanders. The marriage you worked so hard to do right is still hard and still full of trials. There's just a general brokenness that can come from broken systems in the world, bad choices that you've made, even bad choices that others have made. And, and while we might never send money to a televangelist who's promising us riches, I think we can sometimes believe a very subtle prosperity gospel when we become bitter against God when he allows suffering. When we question God's existence because of what we're going through. When things don't go the right way and we say, why is this happening to me? I tried to do everything right. And so sometimes we'll li live with the belief that God exists to make me happy. I'm not happy. And therefore, God must not exist. Or something's going wrong with my faith. I must be doing Christianity wrong because this is hard. Or God must not love me because it seems like if he loved me, I would be doing better. Maybe I'm not a real Christian. Maybe all things work together for good for other people, but not for me. We can live with this belief that things aren't supposed to go badly for us if God is real and if we try to be good. 
And so we can be very surprised when fiery trials come our way. Now, in this passage specifically, Peter is dealing most specifically with trials that come our way because we're following Christ in a world that opposes him. And there's a great persecution that was about to break out against the church in his day where Christians would be burned publicly because they were blamed for burning Rome. And, and so it would literally be a very fiery trial for the Christians that he was writing to. And, and certainly the most specific application is for Christians who are suffering public ridicule and rejection and suffering because of their faith. But most of this can actually be broadly applied to any suffering that comes our way in a life of striving to faithfully follow Jesus. And so the first thing Peter tells us is don't be surprised at trials. This shouldn't be a surprising part of life if we're saying that my life is being lived to follow Jesus because I'm following the one who went to the cross. And really, that's the death blow to the prosperity gospel. Jesus was crucified. Jesus, who did everything right and who was always perfectly faithful, went to the least prosperous place that anyone could go. No health no wealth, no prosperity. Now, the rest of the story is important. He rose. And if we're following him, we follow him in that too. The end game for Christians is to be in the presence of Jesus with total healing, total health, total wealth, total prosperity, but those things just aren't guaranteed in this life. But they are promised when we resurrect like he did. So we are promised prosperity with, with no hand on the TV, no cash mailed to Texas. But when we lay hold of Jesus by faith, we are promised eternal prosperity. It's a delayed prosperity gospel. You might have to put in 90 years before you see that prosperity, but health, wealth, and prosperity, they are coming our way. They are our inheritance because of, of Jesus. But don't be surprised at the trials here. Also in verse 12, he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So some of the trials that we go through are, are because of brokenness in the world. Some are because of human evil that's done against us. But regardless of the source, regardless of how fiery the trial is, each trial does, at least as a byproduct, test us. It allows us to see if we believe what we say we believe. Remember in eighth grade technology class, we had to build balsa wood bridge trusses. And so we used little balsa wood sticks and wood glue. And we kind of spent a couple of weeks designing and building these things. And then at the end of that unit, we would all have to bring our trusses and turn them in. And then there was a machine that would gradually put more and more weight on the trusses until they, they buckled. And, and the goal was for your trust to hold the most possible weight. And that would test the design. It would test the construction. It would see how you did. And we were all kind of competing against one another to see whose, whose structure was going to be able to hold the most weight. And Peter here says that the trials that come into our lives put weight on our lives. And God already knows. God's not looking for new information. He already knows how well-built our faith really is. He already knows what we really believe. He already knows if we trust him. But we don't. I'm really good at deceiving myself. I can convince myself that my walk with Jesus is strong when life's going pretty well, when in reality, I'm just kind of in a good mood because things are going well and there isn't any weight on me. And so God in his mercy allows some weight to be put on me so that I can see what it will take for me to buckle. Will we be ashamed of Christ when our faith is tested socially? Will we turn on one another and abandon one another when we see faults and flaws one in one another, especially the really frustrating kind? 
Where will we turn for comfort when we have real cause to be afraid? Will we resort to just being our old selves when all the easy parts of Christianity are stripped away? So the trials that we go through, they're not good. And in fact, a lot of them can come from sheer evil in somebody else or just the misery in the world that came through sin entering the creation. But some of the good that God allows through those trials is exposing us so that we can know what we really believe. So Peter says, don't be surprised at trials. Recognize that one of their functions is to bring a test into our lives. And then he says in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share, the suf- share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You know, in the Bible, we, we don't have a call for us to be happy about suffering itself. In fact, we're told to mourn with those who mourn. We follow Jesus who mourns. We have, a, we have the Psalms at the center of our Bible where the psalmists are crying out to God in the night as they go through suffering. So, so be careful about thinking, well, I'm a Christian, I shouldn't be sad. Or I'm a Christian, I shouldn't be disappointed or I shouldn't be frustrated, I shouldn't be confused. And also we're not supposed to deny reality and treat our suffering like it isn't real. The Christian scientists, the people who built this building, taught that that the material world isn't that real. It's more like a dream state. And the way that we can be healed of our diseases and the way that we can make it out of our suffering is to recognize that those things aren't real. But the biblical view on the material world is that it is really real. That it does matter. That pain is real, mourning is real, suffering is real, and we feel it and we're following the Jesus who felt it. But it also calls us to rejoice, not because we're suffering, but because the suffering can be a reminder of where we're headed. This is big, because we tend to treat hardship as an indicator that we're on the wrong path. Again, it's a soft prosperity gospel theology, but Peter says that if you're sharing in Christ's sufferings, you're suffering something like Jesus suffered, so rejoice about that, because you're following in his footsteps, and his footsteps do end in resurrection and glory. So things going wrong is not an indicator that we're on the wrong path. In fact, everybody will suffer, and far from indicating that we're on the wrong path, sometimes our suffering can indicate that we're on the right one, and the one that has a glorious destination at the end of it. So you look at your life and you say, I am experiencing grief. Well, so did Jesus at the death of his friend. And he felt it, he wept, so weep away but rejoice, not in the loss itself, but in the fact that you're following the path of Jesus that eventually ends in glory and resurrection. I feel like I'm experiencing the triumph of evil all around me. It seems like bad is winning. And that is bad. And pray about that and work to fix the bad that you can. But rejoice that we're following the one who experienced what looked like the triumph of evil but rose again in glory, and we will too. I'm losing friends left and right because I'm I'm trying to be a faithful Christian. Well, Jesus experienced the loss of most of his followers, and he rose again in glory. So rejoice, not at the brokenness in the relationships. That's a really bad thing. But rejoice at the broken, but rejoice as you go through those broken relationships because that's not an indicator that you're on the wrong track. You're on the track that that Jesus followed that ends in glory. 
You say, oh, but I'm not getting answers to my prayers. Well, keep praying, keep seeking, keep knocking, but also keep rejoicing. Know that, that Jesus prayed that the cup would pass from him and, and it didn't, and he was faithful anyway, and he rose again in glory. That's where you're headed. So don't pretend the pain and loss aren't real. Weep and mourn, but rejoice at the glory that's coming. Then he mentions specifically being insulted. Verse 14, he says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So count those insults as an indicator of blessing. And he says, here's your hope that even when you're being insulted for Christ, God's spirit rests upon you. He comes to minister to us personally. And that's not the the future promise. That's actually a present promise. That as we go through that suffering, as we go through that trial, his spirit is with us. His spirit will give us the resources that we need to rejoice. Jesus said this in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if you're insulted for the name of Christ, rejoice. Now, Peter knows people really well, and he knows our temptation. And our temptation often is to bring trouble on ourselves, but then to treat it like persecution. Because honestly, most of us would rather believe that we're great martyrs than that we're great jerks. And and maybe more this year than, than ever, Christians will like rudely and in an abrasive and an awful way take up a cause, call it a Christian cause, whether it is or not, behave as jerks, and then call it persecution when people call us on that. And you saw this happening on, on extremes, on a number of issues on both sides over the last couple of years. And so Peter says, caution here, verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So first he says some obvious things. He says, if you are a murderer or you're a thief or you're actively doing evil, you're going to suffer at the hands of other people. And you might be tempted to call that persecution, but it's not. I mean, people don't like people who do evil. People don't like people who steal from them. People don't like people who murder them. That, that's all very off-putting. And so, so Peter says, don't suffer for doing those things. If, if you have people who, who mistreat you when you've mistreated them, don't call that persecution. But then he also, in that list, he says not to suffer as a meddler. And that word meddler in the Greek is alatri episkopos. It's the bishop of another. It's a busybody. Someone who jumps into affairs that are not his own or or her own. And there's a certain type of person that loves to just jump into the drama, that loves to be involved in somebody else's problems even when they're not asking for our help, that that likes to be in the know about everything. And and busybodies are closely associated with gossips in the New Testament. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.13 says, besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Sometimes we'll, we'll jump into issues without knowledge of that issue. We'll rush to the defense of someone who isn't asking for it long before we have all the information. We'll join in just loving to be outraged. And then when we're called on it, we say, I'm being persecuted for my faithfulness. 
And Peter says, there's actually a shameful kind of suffering that we bring on ourselves. When we overtly do evil and we suffer for it, or when we're annoying busybodies and meddlers, we can expect that that's going to bring some suffering and we shouldn't call that persecution. Nosy people who don't mind their own business aren't being persecuted when people push back. In fact, to be a busybody is actually to kind of proudly overestimate our own wisdom, to treat ourselves like we're sovereign, like I must know all things, and I think social media makes us a thousand times worse. And we have this sense that I have to rule all things and I have to hold things together. And Peter says, don't suffer for trying to do that. And if you do, certainly don't call it Christian suffering. There is a suffering that we cause. It's a shameful kind. But there's also a suffering for faithfulness and that's nothing to be ashamed of. So you go to school and all of the other students think you're absolutely crazy because of your Christian faith and the way you live that out practically. There's a real temptation for, for shame. To feel like I, I don't want to even acknowledge that I'm a Christian because I'm just so ashamed. All these people look at me like I'm crazy. He says, no, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Don't be ashamed for the name of Christ. You know, another temptation as we hear about all these trials that come the way of Christians is for us to think that if all of these problems come our way because we're following Jesus, maybe it would be better to just not follow him. Like maybe it'd be better to not be a Christian at all. If it's harder to live your life as a Christian in a secular world, maybe it would be better to, to just not do that. But look what he says next in verses 17 and 18. He says, for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So what's he talking about here? I, I think he's referring to passages like Malachi chapter three, verses one through five, where, where there was this hope that God would come to his people and the first thing he would do when he came to his people was purify his people. He would bring trial and testing to his people to purify them. And then he would go out and judge those who have not put their faith in him. And so Malachi 3, I'll just show you this, verses 1 through 5. He says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will, will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So God comes into his house, he refines, he cleanses, and then after that, he turns to judge those outside his house. And Peter seems to be pointing to this kind of motif to say, hey, listen, you've got these, these trials that are among you and God is using them to test you. It is sifting. It is proving who, whose faith is real as we go through those trials. And some of those trials are coming your way because you, you're a Christian. But the good news is that the judgment starts at the household of God. 
But it doesn't end there. Because then once the the household of God is, is refined, God does allow all people to be judged and sifted. And so then the question is, well, would it be better to just not be a Christian then? Peter says, well, the outcome will still be better for Christians. Because everyone will have to stand before that judgment seat of God. It will happen. And the fact that it's beginning with us shouldn't make us want to bail and say, I don't want to be a Christian anymore because God is the judge of all people. He's coming to judge the quick and the dead, that all will stand before that judgment throne. And the fact that we're starting to feel that sifting among us shouldn't cause us to want to bail because it's not like there's a place that we could go to hide from true justice and righteousness. And so in verse 18, he says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So avoid taking the really short-sighted view of things where we look around and we say, well, non-Christians just have it so much better. There's so much less suffering out there. But Peter's saying, well, don't forget the plan. There are trials for everybody. And and yes, Christians have more suffering than others at times. But those trials test us. They reveal whose faith is real, whose faith can bear the weight. And then there's judgment. And nobody will say, when Jesus' glory is fully revealed, that it would have been better to not be a Christian. No one will say that. So don't forget our hope. And if you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, we don't have prosperity in this life to promise you, no matter how much money you put in the offering box. In fact, we can almost guarantee that in some ways life will be harder if you choose to follow Christ and be a Christian. But becoming a Christian is still the absolute best thing that can happen to you. Because all of us will eventually be tried, will all eventually be tested, and the truth is all of us fall short. But if we recognize that we're falling short now in this life, we can find forgiveness in Jesus. And the way we find that is not by working our way to him. It's not by joining this church or some other church or becoming religious and and striving our way to him. We come to him by faith. We believe that he's the perfect one who came and died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. We believe that he was buried and that he rose again. We put all of our trust in him. It's not him plus what we do. It's not him as just kind of like take the edges off my my mostly righteous life and he had to just kind of clean up the edges. He had to totally forgive, totally cleanse me. But if I trust that he paid for all of my sins on that cross and I turn from my sin and my unbelief and I I lay hold of him by faith, then his perfect righteousness is counted as mine my sin was nailed to that cross. And then one day, when I stand before the judgment seat of God, I have a defense. I have forgiveness. I have a savior. And I have everlasting life with health and wealth and prosperity in his presence. So turn to him and believe. It makes life harder, but it's still much better than any alternative. And then Christians, knowing that trials will come our way, here's Peter's final exhortation to us in, these, in this section. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Trust God and do good. Trust that he knows what he's doing. Trust that he's faithful. And just keep doing good, even if it feels like it's not reaping a good harvest yet. 
Job, who suffered as a righteous guy, said this in Job 13 15. He says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. So he says, as I go through this suffering, I'm going to make my case to God. I'm going to bring my argument. I'm going to cry out when I'm confused. But at the end of the day, if he decides that the suffering keeps going, I'm going to trust him. Peter says, do that. Just just keep doing good. Even if the laws of sowing and reaping don't seem to be working the right way, even if it seems like you've put in so much good and you're only pulling up weeds, even though the world isn't the way that it should be and things are not just and things are, are crooked and broken, trust your creator and do good. He is faithful. We will see him. The suffering will end. There will come a harvest. And we're promised as Christians that though we sow in tears, we will reap in joy. So let's entrust our souls to our creator. Let's trust that he knows what he's doing and let's continue to follow him no matter how hard it gets. So let's pray. Well, Father, uh, so often we haven't responded to suffering like this. We confess that we grumble and complain as though you don't know our needs or care how we suffer. We even argue with your providence as though we're wiser and kinder than you are. Our hearts flare up with anger against you when you don't answer our prayers the way we want you to. And so, Father, forgive us for all the ways that we we talk back to you. You would be totally just to destroy us instantly for our sin. But instead, you've chosen to love us and to show us how patient and kind you are with your foolish, weak, and even sometimes bitter children. So, Father, thank you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd continue to remind us of the humility of Jesus in our place. And even though our hearts rise up to accuse and condemn our maker, Jesus stood silent as a lamb and he went to be slaughtered for our sin. He trusted himself to his father in all things without fear, without grumbling, without complaining. And when we don't measure up to his standard, we pray that you would show us our hearts and show us Christ again. Even though our sin weighs us down, your goodness lifts us up. Even though we've failed, you stand today praying and interceding for us. So we pray that you give us faith to believe that you are wiser and kinder than we ever could be. Give us the desire and the strength to follow your commands no matter how hard it gets for us. Because without you, we're nothing and we can do nothing. Thank you that you always ultimately do have your way. That justice will prevail. That we will reap in joy. But in our weakness now, we pray that you'd help us to glorify our Savior, whose love doesn't let us go, and whose death and shining obedience are enough to save all of those who trust in him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.